Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending July 7th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, Nat Harris explores the unfenced boundaries of neighbourly conduct, borrowing a lawnmower from next door. And celebrated playwright Ash Flanders tells us about his shift from theatrical anarchy to naturalistic drama in his new work, This Is Living. Exotic, blousy and big in the 80s, Digger makes a compelling case to bring the Symbidian awkward back into vogue. I panic about function rooms and splitting the bill in my birthday recap. And Rachel Mazza, the artistic director of Ilbidri Theatre, joined us to discuss one song, the music of Archie Roach. Bugman Simon Hinckley resuscitates a long extinct insect through song and comedian Prue Blake takes a circuitous route to her dad's failing retirement in Queensland. Triple R. So the aspirational goal um, for, you know, like a nice relationship with a neighbour, which is always depicted on like in films and in TV, is being able to go over and ask to borrow like or or take, I guess it's not borrowing, a cup of sugar or an egg or just something kind of basic like that. The exchange of grocery items. Yeah, it's lovely, it's friendly. It also, I don't know, there's a distance there as well, you know. You can, oh, oh, I don't know, maybe that's just what I've inserted in my mind as the ideal, like, Oh, I see. So there's a, there's a formality. Neighbors. Is that what you mean by the distance? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just kind of thinking about the ideal neighbourly relationship. Oh, I, I think see. a bit of distance. I see what you mean. Sorry, yes, absolutely. Is good, but, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, it's not really indicative in that example. Anyway, that's kind of the ideal thing. I don't think anyone's doing that, though. Is anyone still, like, going over and getting a cup of sugar, a lemon from their neighbour? I feel I, like they're more likely to get it delivered. I mean, I, I, hope, yeah. I hope so. It's not something that I encounter in my daily experience, but I do live in a block of apartments and there's definitely a lot of social exchange. Yes. And also potentially looking after pets, for example, when people are away. I lived in an apartment block for years and it mm. is definitely a different experience with neighbours. Like it's close knit. Yes. I, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I essentially lived on my own. You feel safe, taken care of. But there was a sense, and I'm not sure, I'm not speaking for you, someone, that I always felt like had eyes on me. Like oh. if I got, like, because every, because it all looked down onto a driveway, the apartment block that I lived in. Right. And so I'd always be like, oh, I hope no one's seeing me get, you know, ordering food again, like Uber Eats. I felt like a sense of people can keep tabs on you in an apartment building. I see. And that's an experience which you don't currently have. No. So okay. currently I live in a house and I don't really know my neighbours. I see. Um, but there is like one on the – I've spoken about previously, we exchange like a friendly knowing way <laughs> that's on right. walks yes. um, and have kind of identified that we both live in the neighbourhood, but that's about the extent of it. Mm. Do you feel inspired to sort of initiate some of these kind of interactions potentially, like to fabricate? the need for a cup of sugar, for example. Well, yeah, I absolutely did initiate an interaction and there was no fabrication (laughs) of the need. I don't particularly like borrowing things... It makes me uncomfortable and yeah. I just – I feel like I can't be trusted. <laughs> um, I don't trust myself, but I'm sure I would take excellent care. But the, the anxiety that it brings up in me – Well, even with your mother's car, for example, yeah, there's so much anxiety. So much anxiety. But was, and I think we've spoken about it in regards to books as well. Mm. Like I just would – I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Um, so – 
Yeah, I did recently borrow something from a neighbour, though. I don't know what came over me. It was a Saturday. I was just having one of those days where it was really productive. You just weren't – I wasn't second-guessing anything. (laughs) I was just like, go, get it, up, do it. Okay, I'll do that now. Oh, I'll trim my own hair. Like I was just feeling empowered. Amazing. Yeah, so I, I was in a mood. And my housemate was away and our backyard uh, lawn, we have like a, a hand kind of manual mower, but that's it, um, that's it. And it had gotten completely out of hand, the backyard, and I really wanted to mow the lawn before my housemate came back. And I was just walking back from one of my many errands <laughs> I was ticking off that morning yeah. and I saw a neighbour mowing the nature strip on the street. And I thought... Wow, this presents as a perfect opportunity. Yeah, exactly. I saw them. I didn't recognise them. They could have been like a hired gardener. Um, Yeah, they could have lived in the house. I didn't know them, but I was like, should I? Yeah, (laughs) I'm just going to do it, like just in my mood. And so I just walked over when they like turned the motor off and I said, oh, excuse me. Um, I told a little bit of a white lie just to kind of kind of add a bit of urgency, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know if it was necessary. <laughs> I just said, sorry, we've got a house inspection coming up and we don't have a lawnmower. I mean, could te- technically that is true if there is a house inspection in the future. Exactly. Yeah. I just didn't know that date. Yes. And because I, I just wanted to make it concise, I guess, was yeah. the reason for the the l- little white lie. But it's not really a lie. No, as you, you stated a fact in that case. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at you two <laughs> yeah. convincing yourself of some bullshit. Yeah. And then I, I know, who cares? And then I said, do you think I could borrow your lawnmower? And it was their reaction that made me kind of stop and second guess myself. They, they were quite taken Perhaps just uh, simply surprised, or they might have been contemplating something quite deeply. Yeah, they were surprised. Yeah. And they were like, I'll check with my daughter. So mm. it wasn't their house. And I, I did approach this house as well because my housemate had told me that even though I hadn't met them, she's like, they're really lovely, they're really friendly, and they they have said if you ever need anything, go over there. But then it turned out that they had sold the house unbeknownst to me, and these were the new residents. And this is how I was welcoming was them into the neighbourhood. <laughs> it's probably neighborhood. good that you didn't have that knowledge in this instance, potentially. It was. It was yeah. excellent. Um, yeah, and so then they were like, let me check with my daughter. I was like, okay, no pressure, no worries. I went back to my house and I'm like, I just live over here. And then about 45 minutes later, I got a tap on the door, knock on the door, and they said, yep, you can use it. Wow. It was a pretty brief exchange. I was like, thanks so much. And then I was like, I'll be 15 minutes because I did get the sense that um, this kind of older man had come over specifically to mow the lawn, so he was waiting. Took around the back, quite a big backyard, and I mowed that lawn as fast as I could. It was quite a workout in 15 minutes. In preparation for the fake inspection. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) the fake inspection, which went really well, by the way. Oh, good, I hope you get it renewed. Yeah, yeah, definitely we'll be getting that. Um, Yeah, I just was mowing through all kinds of flowers and, um, and bushes, just anything. But I don't know. Do you think I overstepped the mark? Well, it seems like it was a positive outcome for all concerned. They got the joy of knowing that they were able to assist you and you were able to prepare for this hypothetical future house inspection. Absolutely. I'd like to think they felt joy. I don't know. In hindsight, I'm thinking that I probably went a bit hard 
too soon, not knowing them. Maybe it is like the cup of sugar or whatever because it's like that's appropriate for your relationship with them. Like, I mean, it seems like the borrowing of a lawnmower falls within the broad category. Do you think? I, yeah. I wonder. Um, yeah, I think so. Well, I, you're asking somebody who's not a resident, so they couldn't give a knee-jerk, joyous <laughs> assent to the neighbourly exchange. They mm. did have to defer. Yes. So I understand that. It would be, you know, if I was mowing the lawns, I would have said yes, and then if my daughter was an absolute monster, I would have just copped it when I went inside. I'm yes. like, they're a neighbour, who cares? I put them in a situation where essentially that it ha- they had to say yes. Well... Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean... I mean, they didn't say it. The, the neighbour didn't say yes at all. He equivocated and said they'd have to ask. No, but I feel like it was never going to happen that they were going to come back and go, no. Like, cause well, like what you said, you're like, you'd just take it from the daughter. You'd go, you know what, we're going to let them borrow it because that is more stressful to say no. Could have let it slide. Like, could have just said, don't want this neighbour who's faking house inspections to take my a lawnmower. Let's just, and then they'll, there'd be weirdness. There'd be weirdness for a long time. <laughs> but but the, the cup of sugar thing is weird as well because, mm. yeah, like no one – I mean, maybe if you live in the far outer suburbs or if there's not enough infrastructure. No, exactly. But in the inner city, it's like, get your own damn sugar. <laughs> and there's all the brown sugar and caster sugar. And what am I, a sugar factory? <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Playwright and performer Ash Flanders has a string of chaotic theatre credits to his name, including productions Playing to Win, Mean Girls, End of, Ash Flanders is Nothing, and SS Metaphor, receiving along the way a swag of Green Room Awards. Ash's new play, This Is Living, about a self-described gang of queers, singles and divorcees going on holiday, is set to be staged at Malt House this month. And to tell us about it, the consummate showman and elder millennial shaman joins us now. Ash, welcome back to Breakfasters. What an introduction. <laughs> Hello, Melbourne. <laughs> uh, so exciting. You haven't gone all soft on us, have you? Oh God, no, just in my midsection. But um, <laughs> no, I'm still as sharp-tongued and vicious as ever. Oh, yeah. good. Uh, so now, what is the evolution of This Is Living in the pantheon of uh, productions of Ash Flanders? Well, I've gone from trapdoors and nudity and slime and plays eating themselves to five friends go away for New Year's Eve. So I think I've decided it's all been done, so why not just do my own version of that? So I'm doing a naturalistic comedy. It's sort of a a comedy. I've coined the term dramedy. So it's kind of a drama, kind of a comedy. And um, it's set in Hepburn Springs. It sort of came out of this uh, real-life New Year's Eve I had with my partner and our three female friends who were all sort of uh, single, child-free ladies in their early 50s. And we went away to Hepburn, as queers and spinsters will, and we had a fantastic time. But it was the end of 2020, which was huge for everyone, of course, because there was a little thing called uh, Pandemica. And then we uh, had also been dealing with my partner's cancer diagnosis and he's fine but like it had been a huge year of chemo and bone marrow transplants and a huge thing and it was just like it was so ripe and rich and there was so much tension in the air that I thought, I'm going to just write all this down and <laughs> sell it for money. <laughs> uh, your, yeah, your pandemic experience, everybody had a unique one and it was moved us and changed us in different ways, but yours was seriously weird, wasn't it? It was really kooky. I was, I was, my life is, is often just like a bad movie, so <laughs> I can't wait to make that. But um, I uh, was about to perform a play all about 
my mother and it, like every gay man, I was about to perform a play about my mother and um and her health, which had been a whole journey, and um not because of cancer, just because of drinking, smoking, and never moving. But um I was about to open that, and then Dan got sick. And then I had to open that play, and that play only went on for two nights before it was cancelled due to the pandemic. So then all of Melbourne got sick. And at the end of that year, I write this, and then I'm about to open this, and the week before rehearsals, mum dies. So it's just like, if I stopped writing, people would live, but I'm not going to do that. It's hit after hit. It is hit, and it will be hit (laughs) after hit. You went to Greece? I went to Greece, yes. Why? Um, (laughs) Well, have you heard about my life here? Wouldn't you get out? Um, No, my partner... And Dan, he and I are obsessed with Greece. Like, again, we, I, mean, I am a you cliche. You two are the only ones. Yeah, we're the <laughs> only ones. Greece. It's actually like really amazing. Um, <laughs> it's a little. Uh, yeah. It's the New Berlin, um, and it yeah, it's not. I mean, yes. Anyway, um, it's fantastic. But uh, he, so we went over there for like six months at the start of this year just to see if we could ever do that. Turns out we can't. And I grew a mustache, but I did not look European. No one was fooled, and I was just another Australian twit on tour. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and now this this play is it? How much did you open up? Do you sense compared far to... too much? <laughs> yeah, yeah, far too much. And I had a reading with the friends that it's based on. I mean, again, another homosexual fantasy. I got to rent a house with some friends, and we all played ourselves in the play I wrote about us, and um, just to make sure they were okay with it because I have really like tried to lean into the truth of it. I I kind of decided with this project not to try and uh, change too much and just make it closer to real life. And that's the whole gesture of the work. So it's sort of like when you come and see the show, which you will, dear listener, yeah. come to the show, you will feel like you are in this uh, Airbnb property in Hepburn with these characters. And I think they're going to feel very familiar because they're kind of people we know. And it's very real. Like there's no crazy dialogue. There's no suddenly like a, a wall becomes a ceiling. You know, there's no sudden <laughs> songs burst out. You know, it's, it's real life, which I find messy enough yeah you said that you kind of really leaned into like being earnest how tricky was that were you just like deleting sarcastic comments in the script no no they all stayed all the mean stuff stayed no when i wrote up i you know i live in a tiny apartment with daniel and we our second the second room the only second room is actually a wardrobe so i sat in there and wrote the play staring at a gray wall like (laughs) with my laptop on top of the chest of drawers sort of typing so it was a very strange thing where I was kind of like living as if I was still back there and I think this was almost during another lockdown we'd had so it was like the only way to hang out with my friends and so it was a I don't know it was a very strange exercise but it was um I think it's created something very different and very funny Mm. and sad how important are these getaways to organize well, it's become like a tradition, you know. I'm like 41 now and I guess you start doing these things and you're like, that's good, let's do it again. And so for like the last five years we've gone away together and it's become this like, I don't like the term chosen family. It feels a bit like Hallmark Channel or like Happy Pride. But like it's, uh, they are kind of my chosen family. We'd have a funnier word for it. But um, we're all sort of stuck together and unlike my real family, I'd actually go away with these people. Yes. Yeah, I actually really like them. <laughs> do you, uh, what are your friendships like over the years do you fall in and out of them? Are you rusted on from the start? I don't know. I've sort of what I look for in a friend has changed. And, and the thing I love about these women in their sort of early 50s is that there's just a different quality of listening. And I talk about that in the play. But, like, I find with friends my own age or certainly younger, they're caught up in their own stuff and we, we're not 
maybe as good at caring for each other or really listening to what's going on with people or you're just trying to keep things light and really funny but with this group I don't know a lot of them have lost their parents they've been through a lot of things they've had you know big lives and so there's a lot to cover and a lot to talk about and so you find yourself opening up they're also naturally hilarious and naturally kind of like this it's kind of like a a natural interview thing that happens we're very curious people and so as I get older I guess I want to be around people who are curious and interested in other people Mm. can they pick when you're like starting to take a conversation or a scene (laughs) in your mind are they like no 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 don't take your wine into the corner stay here (laughs) oh my god I do a lot of corner work yeah Um, just writing yeah just scrawling things down (laughs) no they they're all former performers or performers themselves or writers so they they really get the whole thing and I'm really lucky that everyone in my life because I write about my life a lot um they're always cool with it and I I always try and make myself the butt of the joke I'm never trying to go anyone else but um no these people are I mean one's a professional comedian one's an acting teacher one's worked on every um you know sort of major Australian tv show so they get it you're well connected I I am (laughs) (laughs) not not an inch of help in theater though could not help me in theater at all do you ever get the sense that uh this is all a simulation (laughs) (laughs) well no what about um the idea especially hanging out with your friends and how you can go deep but keep it light that mm-hmm. gallows humor doesn't necessarily undermine sentimentality or earnestness i would i would die on that hill about gallows humor like i've i've had a, a fair bit of like i don't know capital t trauma the last few years and I, I found my sense of humor the scariest times for me was when i wasn't able to laugh at it that's when when you can't laugh at something you can't name it you can't speak it that's when it feels unmanageable or but or like it's 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 too big for you but I think part of this, you know, process of me of writing my life down is a way to structure it and so it makes sense to me, even if it – and hopefully makes other people connect to it and people feel less alone and they laugh and they cry and they feel moved. But ultimately it's also just about me trying to make sense of the chaos of life, which is very unfunny mm. answer. But you've got to laugh at things because that's about all we have control over is how we react. Mm. What about uh, Limbo? Are you still a Limbo? A Limbo champion. Mm. I don't even know why that's in my bio. <laughs> I was never that good at it, but I did once uh, have a very heterosexual... You know, when I was still closeted and my sister wouldn't let me play limbo with her teenage girlfriends, I uh, did kick a hole in the wall and got in a lot of trouble. So I always took limbo far too seriously, which as any theatre artist, you take the wrong thing seriously. Yeah. Are there games when you go away? Yes. uh, A lot of mind games, social games. Let's stop talking to you for an hour. Um, No... Um, not a lot of games. There's a lot of drinking, and you'll see in the play there's some illicit substances. There's a lot of just get, hanging loose and blowing off steam because with these people you can get really messy and laugh about it and know that everything's going to be fine. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. Uh, they love you. And mm. so we all kind of – and, you know, we're gay men and, and single women. We've got a lot to be angry about, and mm. uh, we have a sh- we have some shared enemies. You need a reality TV show, may oh my I God. suggest. <laughs> Put a camera on me and I dry up. Sort of an international water sensibility when you... Yes, mm. exactly. It's like it's a free-for-all. And uh, what I really love about this group is that, like, we will tease each other. Like, if you 
watched us, you would think we hated each other because, like, we, we're kind of harsh on each other and everyone's trying to get a word in and everyone's really funny. But the next day, in the cold light of day where we usually do all our apologising, <laughs> we, will, we will definitely check in and go, I hope that was okay that I, like, joked about, you know, your dead mum doing the limbo. I hope that was okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And so this is living open imminently. What's this period like, this b- oh my God. before an opening? This is the kook, you know, I guess we're, like, we are, we are contractions have started. We're on our way to the hospital. We're, we're nervous. We're excited. We're scared anything could happen. Um, so at the moment we're in the theatre as of yesterday and we're setting up all the lights and teching things and... Yeah, it's 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 a you know I don't have all the crazy special effects that I've had in other shows, but I we're doing this thing with sound where you're going to really feel immersed within the world of the room, and so dealing with all the microphones, all the tech stuff, and then little things like you know how does the mobile phone make a loud enough bing? You know, can we see you if we sit over here? So we're trying to make sure that the audience has the best time possible, and. I've had some really lovely feedback. Some people came from the company and saw it and said, like, oh, my God, it's a play. It's like a capital P play. <laughs> and it is. It's like two acts. There's an interval. Uh, the first act goes for, like, an hour. The second one goes for 50 minutes. It's like, as a theatre artist, this is what you dream about. This is like the bar is happy, the audience is happy, everyone's happy. All right. You've matured. <laughs> I have. Yeah. Uh, this is Living is on at Malt House this July from the 7th to the 30th. Previews? Yes, previews as of this Friday. Okay. Friday, Saturday, uh, Monday, Tuesday. This is living at the Merlin Theatre, Malthouse. Uh, head to malthousetheatre.com.au for all the details. And we've been speaking with the playwright of This Is Living, Ash Flanders. Thanks, Ash. Thanks so much for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. It's that time on Breakfast is to squat in the soil and have a bit of a rummage with Digger in full bloom. Morning, Digger. <laughs> Morning. Morning. How are we? It's been ages. I know. It, it has. It's it good feel to get the way. band back together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, and you've been, what have you been sniffing? Ah, oh, there's just so much going on, but I got really nostalgic this week. There's something about the combination of it's a bit grey and gloomy, um, but I was talking to a friend I haven't seen since the late 80s, early 90s, just happened to bump into. And, you know, you bump into a shopping centre. It's like, I remember this day and remember that day. And Anyway, Symbidium orchids came up, and that's our theme for the day. Now, it's been... They were hot in the 80s and 90s. Everyone had them. You still kind of see them now. If you go maybe south of the river and you go to a bougie restaurant or a nice hotel, you'll see there's incredible floral displays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're orchids native to Asia. We even have some native to Australia, in northern Australia. But they're incredibly blousy, incredibly beautiful, elegant orchids that are flowering right now. So, you know, we buy, in the middle of winter, we tend to buy cut flowers, put them inside and live and trying to liven things up. But these are living plants that we can have in our pots that flower in winter and once they've formed their their buds they flower no matter what you do so it's almost like the the ultimate most forgivable flowering plant you can have and so you can bring them inside and they'll flower for about three to four months 
Which is, again, like... that's bang a for your buck. Ba- talk about bang for your buck. <laughs> You're paying the same for, you know, half a dozen bloody marigolds down bang at the super. Bang for your bloom. Jump <laughs> 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 that down, Matt. Yeah, I will, I will. <laughs> um, so just incredible things. And the colour ranges are amazing and they're fairly forgiving. So being winter or cool season flowering orchids, that's really unusual in the orchid slash subtropical you know, realm. They're just absolutely beautiful. Are you familiar with them? Well, yeah, broadly. I mean, as you, you use the term blousy, uh, mm. yeah, beautiful description. And I suppose, yeah, they did fall out of fashion badly. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know why. Mm. Too blousy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, is, is, what else do you think we're on the cusp of something? Is, is this what you're about? I, I think so. I think, you know, it's, you know, everything old is new again and we hear that all the time. You know, mm. we've had our realm of succulents and everyone's mm. had 30 of them and, you know, they're cool. <laughs> but um, maybe it's time now for a shift and this could be yeah. where... You know, the elegance, rather than, rather than using other words, the elegance of Cymbidium orchids, I think, um, and how exotic-looking they are, but more so that, you know, average you know, amateur gardeners can have a crack and have something that is really forgiving, mm-hmm. really, really forgiving and long-lived. So a Cymbidium orchid, can its life is about 50 years. Mm. So these are things that you could be handing on, you know, when none of us are getting any younger. So intergenerational... Orchids handed down. Now, I have a lot of gardening friends that have had their orchids, that the orchids that they have have been handed down through generations, which is a lovely, lovely thing. And so that got me when I started doing a bit more research about them, that they actually have meaning in Chinese culture. So it's, a, um, it's about morality and virtue and friendship and connecting people together. So in, in Chinese culture, it is, there's just as much honour in giving a Symbidium orchid as there is in receiving one. So it's really a symbol of, hey, I really dig you, you really dig me, let's symbolise this and lock it in with a 50-year gift. Gee, that's lovely. You know, a, life, a gift of lifetime. Beautiful. You know? Just beautiful. Do they require much upkeep? So, upkeep, so they're blooming now, Blooming now. So super simple. So like I said, once they form their bloom, which is they're an outside orchid, mm. um, but once they form their buds, you can bring them inside and they'll flower no matter what. Mm-hmm. So once they're inside, you just have to water them once a week and put them somewhere where there's relative natural light. Now, they don't like full sun at all and that's their beauty. They thrive in, in low light. After months and months and months and flowering is finished and we're getting to spring then all you do is just cut the flower spike off and put it outside into some dappled light, like under a tree. Mm-hmm. And then in the hot summer months, give it a water, you know, frequent watering. So if it's going to be over 30, give it a drink. Um, but really, it's, it's one of the few times I would say buy commercial orchid fertiliser and just give it a sprinkle twice a year with that fertiliser, water it regularly and put it in the shade and you're pretty much done. Wow. They're also a plant that doesn't mind being pot-bound, so they're going to be in a plastic pot. They can be in there and really tight and bursting out of it, which is what most of our house plants are doing, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but most of the other subtropical stuff doesn't like that. They love it. So they can be pot-bound for three to four years and not really struggle about it. All it does is stresses them a little bit and they flower even more. So there's a thing about as your cymbidiums flower more, that's a little cue to like, okay, in next two years, you're giving yourself plenty of warning, you're going to have to do a repot. The only shitty part about that, once you do a repot, they probably won't flower for about two years Okay, because it's a bit of a shock to them. There is a question from a listener actually about the flowering. They said, uh, I have about six Cymbidium orchids, but I didn't know I could bring them inside. Do I need to move them in and out to keep them flowering? No, no. So once the flowering starts, they're on. So... 
just natural light inside, water them once a week, and they're good to go. So, yeah, they're absolutely lovely. I bet you that'll change their world. They've been having them outside all these years to know that you could bring them in and have this, you know, posh <laughs> south, yeah. of the, south of the Yarra you know, boutique clothing store in your lounge room. Amazing. And they've got six. That's going to pop off. Oh, that's going <laughs> to be insane. And the colour range is incredible too, from whites through to yellows, oranges, reds, pinks, and my favourite, brown. Oh. Different shades of brown flowers. To call out the elephant in the room, and I'm chewing my mouth off and I have no idea what I'm talking about, but were they grand Mari? Is that what absolutely. happened? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And then um, because of how spectacular they are, the higher end of society, oh, these are spectacular and very exotic looking. They're not exotic at all, but they're exotic looking. Um, and so it was anyone who wanted to be anyone had to have, uh, you know, a cymbidium orchid. Now, most of the natural varieties are more in the yellowy, greeny tones in the flowers. And it was only then when the Europeans found them, I was like, hang on a minute, and hybridised them that you get all these unique colours. So they're not just single colours, they're mottled colours. And it's just endless, the varieties that you can get hold of. Wow. I hesitate to drag us away from uh, this, but we we have a listener who's planning a fairly advanced ginkgo this weekend, 40-centimetre mm-hmm. pot, soil hits clay about 30 centimetres. Do you have any tips for planting? Okay. So the hole that you're going to dig is going to be twice the volume of that 40-centimetre pot, so twice as wide and twice as deep. That extra clay that you dig out of the bottom of the hole, because there's a lot of clay that's going to come out if it's only 30 centimetres deep, um, you're going to have to mix about 50% of that with compost. So have equal amounts of clay and compost is essentially what I'm saying to go back and backfill that hole. So you're going to have to have lots of compost because the compost essentially represents the potting mix that was in the soil that the ginkgo is used to. The clay is just too dense as an introduction. If you just put it straight back in the clay, it'd almost be taking it out of one pot and putting it back into another pot. Mm. So that that compost is going to just ease it into being in the ground for the next couple of years. Don't be surprised. Now, they're slow-growing ginkgos as they, as they are, but don't be surprised if it doesn't really do anything for two or three years. And to lean into your chemistry now, you mentioned the orchids having commercial soil or fertiliser. What, what is it that makes that unique? Well, it's just a, it's the real balance. So uh, with the slow-release fertilisers, commercial ones, orchids will need higher nitrogen fertilisers through what we call our summer months, so you know December, January, February, because that's building up the leaf. And so in the low light through the summer that they'll be in under a tree, that gives them more leaves to photosynthesise more. That builds up enough root system so that when the second half of the fertiliser kicks in in autumn, that's higher in potash, which helps them set their flower buds. Right. So it's a bit specific. Yeah, sounds it. <laughs> uh, does your is your friend a gardener? I'm wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What sort of chit chat <laughs> brings this well, up? That's the thing about horticulture. It's such a big industry, but it's actually quite small. Everyone knows everyone, well, pretty much, you mm. know. And so you do bump into people decades down the path where it's like. Oh, I remember we worked that part-time job in that nursery that summer. Mm. It was that kind of thing. Yeah, you know? I thought the story was going to end. <laughs> and I have one there to renew our friendship. They're too big. Yeah, no. <laughs> I wish. Uh, where, where can we – where do you think is the best exponent of orchids if you want to get inspired? Um, uh, well, the ones – this is 
blatantly. Can I name? Yeah, nurseries? go for it, please. Um, uh, Fitzroy Nursery in Brunswick Street was a classic one. So that was actually a nursery we were working in, you know, yeah. back in the day. And you know, they have lots of information on their website about it. And so, um, a lot of nurseries will have them this time of year. Your classic garden centres. So maybe not your foodie type nurseries, but your ornamental type nurseries. They will all have them right now. Oh, it, it's quite inspiring. I feel like you've started something. <laughs> well, maybe. Like, I, I should get a cut from this. <laughs> uh, Pardon so, the puns. Bit of uh, Digger, thanks for your puns and expertise as always. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. So as we mentioned yesterday, it was my birthday over the weekend and I definitely recognise people feel differently about birthdays you know I know lots of people just like to kind of let it go by not without much fuss and I don't want a huge deal but I definitely don't mind marking the occasion. I really appreciate this because certainly in my own experience I have like a lot of apprehension, anxiety, melancholy around birthdays so when I can wholeheartedly celebrate someone else's birthday it's a source of great joy so I'm very grateful. Oh that's lovely. I definitely still like have freak outs in the lead (laughs) up to the birthday like emotional meltdowns that all happens but when it comes to like the actual day I'm like oh I just see as the excuse to kind of do some nice things and that's lovely get messages yeah lap 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 it up a bit (laughs) um so this year obviously I was a bit unwell last week so I wasn't really sure if I was I was going to do anything. Oh that would have been a cause of some Oh not. Oh look, it was stress. fine. I was yeah. happy just to be resting. Yeah. Um but in the end I did decide. I was like okay, I'm just going to organize um an early dinner at this pizza restaurant near my house. And I I was like, I'll just call because it was last minute and yeah. I'll call and see if there's anything available. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we can do that, no problem. So I was like, okay, can we just book for like, you know, 10 people or whatever? And um, and then I hadn't invited anyone yet. So I was like, <laughs> okay, so I did it kind of in the wrong order. I was like, all right, I'll send out some messages and then... But those were the parameters in your mind of how many people would be attending? And... Yeah, I, I was thinking, well, this is the thing. I was like, family, the people, numbers clocked up really quickly. And I thought because it was so last minute that a lot of people wouldn't be able to make it. They would have plans already. So, But the invites clocked out really quickly because it was essentially three WhatsApp groups. Mm. I just popped <laughs> it in. It was the basketball WhatsApp. It was the boot scooting WhatsApp, which is some overlap, but definitely some new people in there. Family and maybe like some sprinkling of other comedians or Excellent. whatever. So... <laughs> I was sending out invites way above the 10 people that I, like, had booked for. I was sending out invites like I thought it was a magic table. (laughs) But then soon as I'd done that, because it was like, will I, won't I, will I, won't I, and then I did it. And then soon as I did it, the anxiety kicked in because I, as much as I love birthdays, I forget, I forget this about myself and I forget it every year on my birthday that I find dining out with groups of people 
incredibly stressful. I think that's a useful thing to forget oh. before you invite because otherwise it might not happen. You wouldn't get to enjoy it. My heart rate went up instantly. I just started sweating, thinking about splitting the bill. I started thinking <laughs> about people like going, oh, no, that's mine, eating the wrong meals, then getting halfway through it and then well, trying you, to blame you, the wait staff. You go from a blissful birthday to suddenly becoming like a major event planner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I like the, hypothetically I like that scenario. In reality, no. But anyway, look, that is what I did. That was um, that. That was fine. I was like, okay, you've done it now. Like, this is good. Just enjoy it. This is your challenge. More people could come than I thought. So the magic table delivered? Yeah. So I called the restaurant. I was like, it's actually going to be like closer to 15, 20 people. Is that okay? And they were like, yeah, not a problem. And then um, – Birthday comes around and I turn up and I'm a bit early and they're like, oh, actually, we've put you upstairs in the function room. Mm. Which was... Exciting? No. Oh, no. Alarm bells went off in my head. Okay. Function room, in my mind, is like this big, stark kind of cold room upstairs away from... Like, I'd chosen this restaurant because it's kind of like... Got a lot of hustle and bustle. There's music. It's a great buffer for kind of any social awkwardness. It's a bit like, what? I can't hear you. You can't really have a proper conversation there. So you're going for the ambiance. Exactly. It was like, oh, we're, we're essentially just eating and bopping. <laughs> we're not actually talking, which suited me. So the function room was terrifying. I was like, oh, no. And they're like, yeah, it's just upstairs to the left. And so I started walking up the stairs and uh, my throat was dry. I was like, oh, no, here we go. Why did I do this? Some silent carpeted Yeah, I was like remote. just moving more and more away from that kind of low beat ambient <laughs> techno. I don't know how you describe the music. That was behind me. And then I get to the top of the stairs. I turn left and I walk into this room just like, here we go, like this, the, the bright lights, the cavernous room. No, it was a perfectly sized room. Excellent. It was like it had its own bar. It Perfect. was like this lounge room like vibe. It was incredible. Corporate but, box vibe. Yes, but there was still some anxiety. No one else was there yet. So I was like, okay, perfect. There was a staff member behind the bar. I was like, great, I'm going to talk to them about splitting the bill. And I was like, so obviously you don't split bills, do you? So, you know, how should we do this? Or how can how can I make this work for you? Like, how can we make it most easiest? Because that really stresses me out. Because I feel like whenever you go to a restaurant, they make it out like splitting the bill is like... It's like we're sending people to space for fun. <laughs> we're spending just citizens. But when you ask to split the bill, they act like it is completely impossible. It's like, no, we do not have that technology yet. Like, it, it cannot, cannot happen. And so in, I, in fairness, there are additional costs. And... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's annoying. Please, I always side with the staff. I hate splitting bills when I worked there. But I was just taken aback. I was like, obviously, we won't be doing that. He goes, oh, no, we can. It's fine. He joyful. said these um, point-of-sale services make it really easy these days. And I was like, oh, wow. So we've kind of averted those two kind of crises. And then um, the the next kind of hurdle, I'm a nightmare. Then people started arriving <laughs> and I'd ordered some starters. But then I was like really self-conscious because it looked like it was more – the room made it seem like it was more of like 
a milestone birthday than it was. Mm. It was more <laughs> of a cocktail vibe than, hey, come have some pizza, like, at 6.30 p.m., like, let's just, you know, very, very casual, apparently. And you could see people as they entered this function room, they kind of panicked to being like, oh, my God. It didn't quite correlate with the casual WhatsApp invitation. Suddenly it was this very well-organised yeah. VIP function. And then I'm going, oh, no, they put us up here last minute and I'm doing double time. Eventually, <laughs> look... I did come down and it, it was obviously a lovely time. But, awesome. yeah, I don't know. Maybe it turns out I find birthdays more more stressful than I think <laughs> I do. I love them in theory. Maybe I'm just in it for the, the cards, just hoping cash will fall out. <laughs> Triple R. One of Australia's most treasured performers, Archie Roach, died nearly one year ago, having released 10 studio albums, receiving a Human Rights Achievement Award and being inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. Archie's multi-generational influence is being honoured this week with an evening of song and storytelling called One Song, the Music of Archie Roach, which will celebrate the legacy of the artist and as part of the MSO's NAIDOC Week program. And to tell us about what's in store, we're joined by stage director of the event, a friend of Archie and legendary theatre maker, Rachel Mazza. Welcome back to Breakfasters, Rachel. Good morning, all you early birds. <laughs> I was just saying how much I enjoyed watching the sunrise driving here. It is. There's something special about it, yeah. Uh, and no traffic. It was great. Yeah, I know. It's a whole different world at this time. <laughs> then we leave and we get it's the onslaught of reality. Uh, tell us about what we've what we lost when we lost Archie one year on. There's a massive hole that's that's been left. The extraordinary decades of, um, oh man, the songs of a nation. The, I mean, I remember, well, quite a few decades ago when I first heard his music and was profoundly moved and impacted. Um, and and it was and it's that voice, that that capacity that he had to cut. Right into your soul, mm. as if he was singing to you only. And I, I, I don't know what it was, but hearing his voice, I instantly just want to start crying or laughing or, you know, just immediately moved. So anyway, he, he's such a uh, one of a kind. It's very hard to imagine the world without him and his incredible voice and beautiful music. I mean, I think he leaves an extraordinary legacy through his music and I, I was great to hear how many albums is I was yeah I, I didn't realize there was that many that's mm. yeah but and the and the legacy that he leaves actually in this concert is all these incredible extraordinary young artists um well young mid-age <laughs> artists uh that that have all worked with him in some capacity and and have all and we would all you know bow to to Archie as a as an incredible inspiration and um yeah leading leading light in our lives do you um, suspect this event maybe is not only paying respect to Archie but necessary for the artists and a, a cathartic celebration oh, absolutely Absolutely. There isn't anyone in that room that doesn't have a relationship with him in, and has been touched deeply in some way. Um, anyway, and, and also I just, you know, reminding NAIDOC week for our elders, you know, this is our, it is our elders, uh, those who hold the stories, the, our knowledge holders, our, our inspirational guides. 
mm. uh, yeah, that, that we are, are honouring this week. So it's it's more than fitting. Absolutely. Yeah. And with the, the stage direction itself and this incredible ensemble that you have brought together to perform the songs of Archie Roach, can you tell us a little bit about who is involved and how the rehearsals have been going and how the preparations are going? Yeah, yeah. Yesterday actually has been our first day in the room um, and I can't take credit for pulling, pulling this collective together. And just saying, actually, the extraordinary artists that are in the room, there's an awful lot who aren't in the room and should be in the room. Like, it, there's that many. I mean, we could have a, oh, I don't know, a, a year-long concert <laughs> to, if everybody who's been touched and worked with Archie was, was to stand on this stage. So just to kind of acknowledge and Absolutely. and pay, pay tribute to all of those who should also be um, on the stage singing with us. Yeah, but... Um, the extraordinary talent <laughs> that's in the like I'm because in the rehearsal I'm sitting there just going <laughs> like I have to keep pinching myself. I was like I've got like two thousand dollar seat tickets here front front row <laughs> private <laughs> yeah yeah I'm sitting here with my CD collection yeah incredible artists Radical Sun and Dan Sultan and. Um, Jess Hitchcock. I mean, Emma Donovan um, uh, actually was, wasn't in the room yesterday, but anyway, he's one of our most stunning, extraordinary um, singers. Anyway, there's just an extraordinary. Um, and actually in in the spirit of Uncle Arch and his, yeah, and you talk to, uh, well, anyway, it, it, his biggest passion was our young fellas. So what is, uh, and it was always, that was the priority. It was, the, uh, in fact, um yeah, uh, right from the ever since I've known Uncle Arch and and Aunty Ruby, that it was all about what are they, what opportunities are they creating for for the next generation of young fellas. Absolutely. So yeah, there's also we've got young fellas up on the stage as well with the Dungala Choir and extraordinary artists like Tamala Shelton and Alara Briggs and totally and um, there's Ke- Kian's involved I and Kian. Oh my lord, yeah, 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 yeah. So these you know just stunning, extraordinary artists. And incredibly humble, yeah, though though incredibly talented. <laughs> it's like, how can you be so talented <laughs> and humble? Is there any argy-bargy about who gets to on an Hell no. <laughs> no, 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 because we're all there for the same reason, yes. which is, is all about honouring this but, but what about who gets to play what? Oh, uh, yeah, good point. No, no, no. It's um, Well, it's actually quite evenly... Shared and yep. and there's times where they support each other oh. um, with with harmonies and whatnot. So I mean, yeah, you, no, no. your involvement in uh, theatre over the decades, you would have been you've run the gamut of theatrical experience. This must be a cakewalk for you. Well, actually, there's in in an interesting way. Um, how, how long ago now? 15, 16 years ago, um, I was actually on the stage with all of these guys with Black Arm Band. Yes. Um, I, being the narrator, using my narrator voice. Um, <laughs> so actually, I'm like I'm surreally having these flashbacks of oh my lord, here we are. But of course, without Uncle Arch, though of course Uncle Arch at the centre. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was yeah yeah yeah. What well, can you spoke? You touched on Archie's charm and stage presence. How I mean, is it just indescribable or, or unteachable? It, I mean. As someone who works with artists, how do you even reconcile that instantaneous presence? Yeah, I, I, I can't. I, I, like I said, my very first time of hearing his music and then, you know, being on standing on the same stage with him, it was literally quite surreal. I'm mm. like, I feel completely 
like the impact of his voice <laughs> and instantly reverted to a ball of emotion and you know I, I don't it's it's such an extraordinary gift mm. that he had through his voice and it was actually the way he spoke as well like his his incredible capacity to contextualize in such a like you know the, I, I think about a lot of the the songs it's that ability to speak about the the hard stuff like the truths but in such a kind of gracious humane non-judgmental um uh, i don't know how what it was but you could you found yourself yeah just by, but deeply deeply moved mm. and hearing it afresh hearing it in its complete humanity so you know and it's it's that voice of reason it's when he was able to sing or speak to it, it was like, of course, mm. of course we should do something about this. Yeah. You know, like it was completely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard, it's hard to describe, isn't it, because it's so visceral. It's so... Um, he also spoke as well about, like, the healing power of, like, music and performing. Exactly. And he, um, I remember seeing a documentary, he spoke every time he performed, he felt like he was able to kind of heal a little bit more of his trauma. And everybody who listens. Yeah. Right. I can yeah. imagine it would be quite, you know, a raw space as well for a lot of these, you know, younger artists performing, you know, his songs. And yeah, yeah, yeah. His, his loss is, is still very raw. Mm. What about uh, Backstage? What was he? Did he get nervous, or what was the what was Archie's off stage, or was he the same on and off? Can you give no, any no, insight it, to that? Because if, for him, it was there was no separation. Like he absolutely lived it from the moment he woke up, well, probably even in his sleep. You know, like he just it was no um, ego about him. You know, and I think nerves is attached to ego. Is that that kind of like MI? You know, questioning is like he had no questioning. He just absolutely lived and breathed it. Ego is so important as a in must loom so large in your world. Trying to chip it off people and cut through it and well, it's an interesting one actually because there's not ego is not a bad thing either. No, like of course, you, you actually need to have a healthy amount of ego to to, to keep going yeah. and to believe that you know believe, but, believe but in, in what you're insecurity, about. I suppose, or fragility. Then or... there's danger. Then there's bad ego mm. <laughs> as well. But goddamn, there's definitely none of that in the room. Um, and yet, we've got some of the world class, best, most stunning artists in this country, um, and not not a not an ounce of of that kind of ego. Yes. <laughs> we described so beautifully just the profound emotional experience of working with all of these incredible artists. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit more about some of the, yeah, what people can expect in terms of the, the presentation of one song over the two nights at Hamer Hall. Yeah, so there's obviously been a really strong relationship with Paul Grabowski and, and, the, um, and Paul um, and um, Uncle Arch and, the, and that music and, and Ani Ruby. Um, so that that is that's de- at the heart of this is that that um, that partnership mm. and, and the MSO. So and and of course all these all these singers, like I said, have all all got relationships. So there's an incredible breadth of music that's um, that is going to make up the repertoire. Um, some lesser lesser known works, um, all the way through to the very well known. Um, uh, Oh, great. <laughs> Where's my brain going? Took the children away. <laughs> you 
you know, there's, there's, but but definitely not. Yeah, you, you'll you'll be nicely surprised. There's quite a breadth of beautiful songs, and there's something about. Uh, Anyway, I, I remember the same experience, similar experience with Black Arm Band. There's something about, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's being in the Hamer Hall, maybe it's the, being, having the MSO underneath the music. I'm, I don't know. There's something about hearing the songs afresh. Yes. Like, so I'm sitting there yesterday in the room and it's like the words just completely lifting out and just anyway just absolutely stunning it's so so, yeah there's there's no doubt that you know you may have thought you've heard this music but you you know you haven't you know what I mean like you're gonna hear it absolutely hear it afresh through through the well the beautiful interpretation of these singers um but then supported by obviously the the stunning MSO and Paul Grabowski's uh and Eki Valtime's arrangements yeah um yeah, yeah, no, it's a pretty, pretty kick-ass. Yeah, <laughs> what is it? What is, <laughs> do you it. check in with the MSO players? What's the how are they and what's the relationship between this extraordinary outfit and the artists as yeah. well? How's that playing out? Well, like I said, there's actually a long history of um, like going back to Black Arm Band and, and probably before that, but that whole relationship with the MSO uh, um, have been quite a um, – done quite a lot of works with Blackfellas actually here mm. in Melbourne um, uh, and, uh, you know, as Ilbidgery Theatre where, where I'm positioned. Um, yeah, we're, we're – um, yeah, there, there, there was always these – Ah, oh, we've got to do a co-pro. We've got to, you know, like it's they're 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 just stunning. Very yeah, keen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and it's not. I'm, you have to be there. It's going to be a show for the ages. Will there? There's listeners asking. Maybe if they can't make it, will it be recorded for posterity? Oh, that I don't know. Okay, you'd think so. You'd yeah. think so. I hope so. Because um, it really ch- deserves to be, uh, you know, recorded. It's instantly yeah. iconic. It's unbelievable. It's one song, the music of Archie Roach. It's taking place over two nights, Wednesday 5th and Thursday the 6th of July at 7.30pm. It's at Hamer Hall. Tickets are on sale now. Go to mso.com.au. And the Brains, can we call you the Brains? No. no. The stage well, director. I, I really can't take credit. This is definitely a collaborative affair. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Rachel Maz is pulling the strings, and uh, it's a great pleasure <laughs> to have Rachel back in the studio. Thanks, Rachel. Uh, thanks for having us. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Creatures this week, we're joined by Simon, Song Dance, and, and Bugman Hinkley. Morning, Simon. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Uh, how's uh, entomology life treating you? It's it's not bad. Um, I thought we'd talk about uh, a species, and I'm going to I have to say it right at the start because I'll forget very quickly what it's called. It's um, Prophalangopsis obscura. So now that I've got that out of the way, <laughs> it's basically um, it's part of the group of insects, the Orthopterans, which is the grasshoppers, crickets, and katydids. And most of us would know um, katydids, but but if you don't apparently called katydid because the sound they make sounds a bit like katydid, katydid. But um, usually green, uh, in large pair of uh, hind legs for jumping, really long antennae, they're all through Australia, there's about a 1,000 species. But this particular one, um, I'm going to call it P. obscura to avoid that long genus name, <laughs> um, is a really interesting uh, critter. It's from a family that was really at its peak in the Jurassic, so we're talking about 150 to 200 million years ago when there was uh, about 90 species. Today we're down to about nine and 
the this one in particular is interesting because it was found, it's represented by one single individual, uh, a male in the Natural History Museum in London. So it was collected uh, and then described in 1869. So it's just been sitting in the collections for all this time. There's been attempts to refine it, uh, but they haven't been able to find it again. There was a couple of female uh, insects that were found in Tibet in about 2005-06. They thought that it might be this species, but um, as everyone will know, there's sexual dimorphism in nature. So, for example, a really obvious example is the peacock and the peahen. Peacock, male, spectacular tail, peahen, not drab, but less spectacular. Um, so, of course, there's also sexual dimorphism in insects. So these insects, these females, didn't look exactly like the males. So they could be the species, they could be something different. What you want to find is males and females mating because obviously then that's going to give you the clue. Um, but anyway, so this critter has been sitting in the collection for all this time and uh, ha- has been unfound again. And so what some scientists have done, which I thought was really clever, is they've used a whole range of techniques, um, things that I've never heard of before. Basically, let's just say 3D scanning, um, but much, much more complex than that. They've recreated the, the wings and the sound-producing structures. And I should have said, Katie Dids produce sound. As, as If you go out at night, you can hear grasshoppers, crickets, Katie Dids. The sound production is basically calling in a mate and also just saying, here I am, my spot, that sort of thing. And the way that Katie Dids produce sound is they have a thickened like vein on one forewing and they rub it against like a set of teeth on the other forewing. So they're rubbing their wings together to produce this sound. Like a violin or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they've got these sort of uh, organs called, a really cool name, a harp and a mirror, which are used to sort of uh, amplify and, and send the sound out. So, yeah, they did this amazing work in scanning all these sort of these, these tattered wings of this one single specimen and then comparing them to today's current relatives to get an idea of the song. And you can actually hear the recreated song of this insect. And look, it sounds like your standard sort of crickety grasshopper thing. But it's also, I sort of thought it was quite amazing because it's basically, assuming they've got it right, because we don't know for sure, but it's like a little window into what would have been calling in the Jurassic, you know, 150 million years ago when Gondwana, the supercontinent, was just starting to break up. We didn't have polar ice caps. The world was a completely different place. So it's this really amazing sort of, link back to that time but what it also does is it's not just that sort of um interest for interest sake but what they could also use this song for is if we want to find that this species still exists unfortunately the the single male was collected from what the what the collector called hindustan which is equivalent basically to modern day india india is a pretty big place so if you want to find this species again it's like saying i found it in new south wales i found it in australia where do you where do you look uh, so we've got India and we've now got possibly Tibet. So by having this recreated song, what you can do is you can go to areas where you think it might be, play the song, see what comes in, see what responds. Um, again, assuming the song's correct, because if it's not correct, <laughs> the critter might be there and go, well, that's not, they're not my people. I'm not going to respond to that. But if they've got the song right, uh, they might come in. The other thing that you can do is go out with um, recorders, basically just put a put a machine out that records all the nocturnal sounds you bring them back and it's amazing you run it through a program Uh, they use this for bats a lot and it will tell you well that sound is a short-tailed shearwater that's a horseshoe bat that's a free-tailed bat and if you know the song you can record the sounds and the machine will say well that's your cricket that's your katie did that's your bat sort of thing so it's a really nice bit of work they've done 
that sort of works on a whole lot of levels and may actually help to refine the species, hopefully. Because I should have said too, it's quite a big critter. Like with the wings stretched out, it's sort of 10 centimetres from wingtip to wingtip. So it's not a little insect, it's quite a good sized uh, katydid. Are you, uh, are there other insects that you can't wait for this technology to be applied to? It is, in some ways it's a little bit scary because I thought, geez, you know, do I need to be like digging a well and buying baked beans? Am I going to be out of a job in a couple of years? You know, like the, the, the way technology is going is quite amazing, but, but it is, and, and yes, there are certainly, um, there's been some really nice uh, positive conservation stories where things have come back from being declared extinct. Um, the Lord Howe Island stick insect is a really good example, which I've probably talked about here before. They don't make noise, but certainly there are, um, if there are 90 different species, were 90 different species of this thing, if you had um, records of the bodies, you could actually recreate the whole like, sort of Jurassic wow. chorus, if you like. Um, but the other um, interesting thing about these is that... Um, so with that song, the, the other important thing is that it enables a sort of a non-invasive way of sampling. So, for example, there are... When we find try to find threatened insects, there is a program where people have used trained dogs to find um, a particular species of insect in the Alpine area in Victoria. So rather than digging up a stream and going, oh, well, there they were, but now we've dug up the stream and, and we've actually squashed a few and wrecked the stream, the dog will actually sort of go, there it is. So rather than having a whole lot of dogs all sniffing the one single 150-year-old-plus critter, you can actually sort of play these songs and see whether that might be enough to determine if the species is still out there. So it's really interesting technology. And while we've been speaking, Daniel's done some entomological uh, deep diving as well yeah. and has found a link to well, the song. I don't know if it's it. We'll play secret sound for yeah, Simon yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is Fossil Cricket Reveals Jurassic Love Song. <laughs> Is that the wrong one? I think that's the wrong one. Yeah, good, good. I'm so glad you can pick them. <laughs> I'm curious as well, like, how would they roll this out, like, with the, taking the song out into nature? Like, are they kind of – is there a way of kind of refining the search where, like, are they just speakers? Like, yeah, like, how does it happen? Yeah, and the other thing that they've been able to work out just by looking at the insect is the size of the wings on this one makes it look like it flew. The current living relatives of so of those ninety species in the Jurassic, there's about nine that are still extant or still with us, mm -hmm. and all of those other ones are basically flightless. Okay. So this, but they think this one flew. So that's another clue because a lot of katydids have given up the ability to fly because if you fly at night, the bats go, oh, fantastic, there's dinner. So it implies that um, these things were occurring implies there could have been other reasons these things might have had the most amazing defense and didn't care if bats came at them but it implies that they occurred where bats weren't so that's sort of suggesting north tibet and india and in the really high cold areas where there generally aren't a lot of bats so that helps sort of narrow down where you might put the speakers mm -hmm. and yes you would basically go out um that that's exactly the problem that saying hindustan is useless and saying tibet is mm -hmm. is not helpful but if you go well you know, we think that it might be the Himalayas are still pretty impressive, mm. but um, it, it gives you at least a zone where you can go out and you can pretty much, as you say, um, what we will do at the museum if the bat people are doing their work is they'll go out and they'll literally sort of tie this uh, recording machine onto a tree, leave it overnight so you don't have to sit out all night trying to see bats fly overhead, go, what was that? Come back, download the what's been recorded and it gives you 
last night at this tree, there were these four species in the sky above. So it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah. Have you seen this insect? I've seen an image of it in the Natural History Museum and it, it's underwhelming, only in the sense that um, it's, it's old, it's bashed, it's a bit crumpled. Um, I mean, it was collected by someone in the army and it was then taken from India to the United Kingdom at some point in its life, sorry, its um, its death, at some point in its uh, museum experience, it's been reset. So the wings have been um, sort of taken and set out from the from the insect. So it, it's not sort of something, if you looked at it in the drawer, you'd go, yep, yeah, sure, that, that's a bit of a beaten up insect. But when you go, oh, that's the only one that we know is that species that anyone's ever seen, then it becomes more interesting. Mm. Yeah. Does it get your mind racing for that period? Well, what it does, but what it also makes me think is how many amazing things are sitting in museum collections. And I, there, there is that part of me that goes, people often say, oh, hang on, so why are we paying to keep a collection of dead insects? Like, what is what is the point? But when you can go, well, because it lets you know if that label had been better, we would have known where to go back to to find try and find this species. So it really shows the importance of collections, but also data collection. But it's also important, one of the other areas where technology is booming is the use of DNA. So... Um, in the past, obviously, a lot of researchers would borrow specimens and look at the um, the physical differences to say that's a new species, that's a new species. Now it's often, can we take a leg off that one and a leg off that one, do the DNA work, and we can tell you that's not the same species. So to have, of course, if you've got one individual, you're not going to let everyone pull a leg off because then you've just got a pair of wings. But if you have more than one specimen in a collection, that's the advantage of having collected multiple Examples, mm, and we're getting into Jurassic Park territory. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. It's a little bit sort of scary, but exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, Simon Hinckley always at the forefront of it all. Uh, do you have an impression of the? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, look, it, it was um, it was pretty underwhelming. But if you search, it's in the Natural History Museum. If you sort of do a search for song Katie did 150 years, you'll, yeah. you'll get to various sites that have that, and you can go. He's rubbish. He can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Simon Hinckley, thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R. Check in with our Friday funny bugger, former Royal Comedy winner and notorious bus spotter, Prue Blake. Mm, hello. I tried to catch the bus the other day and it did not come. <gasps> what? I'm sorry. This is why my PhD failed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you, it came eventually, but does the one you're expecting never arrive? The one you... I was expecting didn't arrive. The one after that didn't arrive. One did come, but it was not in service. Uh... And then I just walked. Uh, yeah, um, I saw recently route, bus routes are pretty manic, aren't they? Bus routes. Oh, well, I've, do you know what? I've not really kept across the bus yeah, no, since heard. graduating. <laughs> they, uh, they, they're not. They don't go on a straight line. Bus routes in well, Melbourne. Yeah, they've got to make up for. They've got to you know do what the train and the tram can't. That's right. Yeah. That's true. They got to weave through those. <laughs> they've streets. got to wibbly wobbly around. Mm. How's Could- Oh, no, I was just going to say, do you have a favourite, or I extend this question to all of us, a favourite bus route? Oh, the favourite bus route, and this was universal. Like, I had to, for my PhD, which was trying to get people to catch the bus in Melbourne, and the answer was you can't, um, for 402. Oh, I don't, I'm not Footscray to, like, Carlton. Oh, OK. 402, oh, 420. Like incredible bus route. Oh. Everyone loves it. What are some of the highlights of that bus route for you personally? For me personally, yeah. I really like when you get to um, Carlton Gardens. Ah, nice. sense of arrival. Sense of arrival. You're like, I'm in the city now, I'm in the <laughs> gardens. And uh, when you get to Footscray Station, yes. you're like, wow, I've Always done the whole highlight. route. And it was quick. <laughs> Where do you sit? 
oh, I really like the seat when you enter through the, you go through the front and then there's the middle door and then there's the like, <gasps> the screen yeah. and then you can sit behind that screen. I think that's everyone's favourite seat. It's the best Surely. seat on the Because you're sitting up high and it feels like a ride you can kind of watch out over the road. Yeah, you're not road. looking at the back of someone's head. Yeah. You can really survey the bus, yeah. feel like you own it. I enjoy sitting at the very front of the sky bus on oh, the second level I like hovering that over the road. That's a real thrill. That is a thrill. You're like, <laughs> this is like a ride. It is like a ride and there's free Wi-Fi. And I mean, everyone get behind the sky bus. It's the most successful bus route in Melbourne. Most successful? Mm. I believe it. There you go. Yeah. We need Hard it. to get out to the airport otherwise. <laughs> yeah. uh, how's your threads influencing? My threads influencing? Yeah, I've got 250 followers. Wow. <laughs> Not bad for a day's work. I did actually, your first thread made me giggle oh, about um, being able to gauge which one of your friends can deal with change. Yeah, that's what, it, that's what it's showing, right? People are going to trickle in a week from now, no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> that first day, that was fun. Yeah. Now I'm kind of over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else do you do online? Don't you, you have uh, niche interests? Oh, yeah. yeah, none of this is what I was going to talk about today, but it is fun. I, I We were talking about ASMR, and I'm not really into that, but I do love watching um, people that make slime and they squish the slime in the videos. And it's got a whole language around it. It's oh, incredible. It's a- They're like, this this slime is like a sexy snow fizz slime, and it's good for pops and crackles. Wow. And they squish it, and it's just very mesmerising. Uh, did you like celebrities getting dumped? Was that a thing? for you <laughs> like on Nickelodeon yeah. yeah I thought for a while that I would I would use that to promote my comedy festival show like I would say if I sell out every night I'll let someone slime me <laughs> in the park but I didn't sell out so <laughs> nor, nor did I make that public <laughs> the uh, 402 is getting some love 402, oh, yes. Yeah, the magic bus. It takes you everywhere you need to go. Exactly. Yeah. It's everyone's favourite. <laughs> well, if we're shouting out bus routes, I want to shout out the 246. Where does that go? That goes from um, like Clifton Hill down to Elston Week. Oh, yeah, nice. And so you're going down Hoddle, but you're going in the bus lane. It's so quick. you are rocketing through traffic. Yeah. It's, it's thrilling. That's I stunning. definitely recommend it. And you feel so superior when you get a bus lane. Yeah, like, yeah. Bye, cars. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. It's the it's up there with like a lime bike or a scooter for, to crossing town as a fisher. Oh, um, absolutely! I yeah. love a scooter. You guys getting in on the scooters? Yeah, I enjoy them. Yes, very yeah. much. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <gasps> yes, we need to talk Scooting about. Scooting about on my nothing feels more free. It is very liberating. Yeah, it's really a little liberating. bit of vulnerability accompanied. Accompanies oh, I'm the scared the yes. whole time. <laughs> I'm scared I'm going to lose my teeth. That's what I was really yeah. worried about. I'll Maybe get off. a mouth guard. <laughs> well, I, I feel embarrassed enough someone seeing me on the scooter. Like, there's a point where you cross over, because um, I live in North Melbourne, and when it gets to to kind of the Carlton Gardens, you can't go through the Carlton Gardens, you have to go around. That's right. But that for me is a signal, like, this area is getting too cool, don't let people see you on the lime scooter. So I ditch it <laughs> so and it's walk a, it's from there. It's a protective there. measure. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine if they were seeing me putting on my helmet, I, like, tighten it up at the back, popping in my mouth guard, <laughs> knee pads. <laughs> uh, we have distracted you. What is on your mind? Oh, okay. This is what I want to talk about. It's actually my four-year anniversary with my partner today. Oh, congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's been a while since I've been in. Probably hadn't met him last time I did <laughs> breakfasters. And... Uh, 
I've just been thinking about, like, I was like, oh, finally I'm going to be able to relate to my parents because they got married at 21 and they've been together ever since. And so all of my 20s, they never had to be in a share house. They didn't know how to relate to me. They didn't know what was going on. But as soon as I've kind of locked that down, my dad is now trying to retire. (laughs) And I just feel like boomers can't handle retirement. Like, all of his identity is locked up in work and what he does, and he's really struggling with it. Like, if you guys could retire tomorrow, would you? I didn't think so. Really? No. No. I I saw a study recently that there are people who think they can retire at 55, and apparently the the news used the word uh, delusional. (laughs) (laughs) By the time I'm ready to retire, I'll be like 80. (laughs) A solid 80 you can get out. But I would absolutely retire. Do nothing. The dream. So Yeah, so unlimited means you could travel, you could pursue all of your hobbies and interests. Yeah, I might do a course or something. I've already done a lot of uni. Pottery. I'd love to do pottery. Mm. Well, Okay, this is how my dad's filled his time. He's found something to replace work. I would argue it's more work. (laughs) Um, But he built himself a fire pit. And now he just burns everything he can get his hands on. All day, every day, get the picking up a, stuff. It's a seasonal pursuit as well with the, the cold 24/7. weather. 24-7. Oh, I see. That fire never goes out. It's the eternal flame. <laughs> <laughs> like, Got, maybe practising for a loan, perhaps, do you think? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Is it related to the end of the financial year? <laughs> yeah, this has to go. <laughs> no trace. Uh, you, you kind of think it seems nice. You know, I like looking into the flames and I can see him kind of contemplating yeah. the life that he's lived and the life he has left to live. Uh, and you think maybe I'd join him, but the chairs that he built around the fire pit, they were made of wood, first to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they burned longer. There's just a few nuts and bolts left. How are you uh, – did your boyfriend and your dad get along? Uh, yeah, I think they've met maybe once. Oh, Queensland? Yeah, Queensland. Yeah, my parents live in Queensland, so you can get out of it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think they would get along eventually, but maybe they're too similar, you know? Oh. But I can see them both burning together. I think that would be a good pastime for them. Would that be disconcerting if your boyfriend realises that you've fallen in love with your dad? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, I'd say so. Uh, Not ideal. Uh, You don't really want to admit that to yourself. You should put that in the anniversary card today. Yeah. Love you, daddy. Oh, God. Uh, and how's uh, how's everyone else coping with your dad's retirement? Oh, look, yeah, everyone's... Is he around too much? Yeah. Mm. He's had to build him. They downsize. They moved to Whamaran, um, which I like to be like, whoa, Black Betty, Whamaran. <laughs> and um, they don't love it when I do that. And they've got a tiny house and they've just slowly built more and more. There's a men's shed. There's mum's nook. They get to <laughs> their own, get their own space outside of the house. Sounds like it needs its own bus route. Flora <laughs> <laughs> two just goes around. <laughs> Uh, Prue, where can we see you? Oh, you should follow me on Instagram at Privilege Comedy and read my newsletter, I Shave My Legs for This, on Substack. And then I'm just gigging around Melbourne, so keep an eye out. There's lots of great shows coming up. I'm doing Local Laughs in St Kilda on Monday and Comedy Republic every so often. Heaps of good shows. Cool. And uh, the 402. And I'll be on the 402 (laughs) and I'd love to hear from you. (laughs) Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.